0: Good morning. Welcome to the Center for American Progress. My name is Jonathan Moreno. I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and a senior fellow here, uh, and the senior uh, and editor-in-chief of Science Progress, um, the second hard-copy issue of which uh, we hope you all have. And if you don't, there are uh, there are more outside. Um, we launched Science Progress, uh, a- as they say um, in the in the web world. We had a soft launch of Science Progress uh, in. Uh, about October of uh, 2006. A few months later, we published our first hard copy issue. Um, and uh, gradually, I've noticed that the uh, the, our, our, uh, the folks that we're getting for our Science Progress events are more and more well-dressed. So um, there's some measure of the fact that you know, we seem to be on the upswing. Uh, I, uh, when, when we started Science Progress in the fall of 2006, uh, I think a lot of people thought that this was going to be sort of just another opportunity to uh, have a venue to, to bash the Bush administration for their uh, science policy or, or, or lack thereof and uh, it, in fact we haven't done very much of that. Uh, we've, we've done it as appropriate uh, and certainly we had no lack of opportunity uh, to do that. Um, but our goal at, at Science Progress was a much longer term one, namely uh, to, uh, to help develop a conversation on, on science policy for the country that we felt uh, had been lacking. Uh, particularly uh, in the last uh, seven or eight years and uh, just this morning the Washington Post has a, a very concise piece uh, on the front page about the failure of the administration to, uh, to invest in science and technology to, to help to develop new ideas for the last uh, eight years and it was in effect a, 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 a decade of lost opportunity. Uh, so uh, our goal philosophically at, at Science Progress is to help to uh, develop uh, the, the uh, interesting, not always feasible perhaps, but we think some will be applicable ideas to move the American economy in the direction in which it needs to go uh, in the spirit of the founders. I like, I'm, a, I'm a philosopher and historian, uh, and I like to uh, think in, in terms of the way that uh, there is this, this, this red line that runs through our history from the founders uh, who appreciated that the new nation would need to be built in large part on the creativity and inventiveness of its people and the ability to bring them from the four corners of the world uh... to to, to invest their ingenuity uh... here uh... so uh, we, uh... uh... we have a smile on our face we we think we can we can get this thing going again uh... and but we need to dig in into the into the details of tough issues in order to do that uh... rhetoric is not enough So uh, in that spirit Um, I'm really pleased to be able to introduce the moderator of our first panel, who for uh, many, many people in this room and and, and watching us on the web needs no introduction. Uh, Jim Turner has has recently retired uh, following a prestigious career on Capitol Hill. Turner served for over 10 years, including the entirety of the 110th Congress, as the Chief Democratic Counsel to the U.S. House Committee on Science and Technology. Jim was recently the National Institute of Standards and Technology Audit for Don Beyer in the Obama Transition Team. Turner has also served as Staff Director on the Technology Subcommittee for the formation of the committee until the Republican takeover of the House in 1994. He was also the lead staffer for NIST for 10 years, Counsel and Legislative Assistant to Congressman Gary A. Myers, and a Legal Writing and Research Program Director at at Georgetown University Law Center. Among Jim's key Legislative achievements while on the Hill include the American Competes Act, the Small Business Innovation Research Program reauthorizations, and the bayh Act Amendments. Jim has received a number of prestigious awards, including the Ronald L. Brown 2008 Standards Leadership Award. He was made an honorary fellow of the American Society of Civil Engineers in 2008. Jim is currently a trustee of the University of Virginia School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and a member of the Dean's Advisory Board at the Heinz School of Public Policy at Carnegie Mellon University. He's on the Board of Directors of the, of the American National Standards Institute and at Scientists and Engineers for America. He's on the Advisory Board of Innovations, Technology, Governance, Globalization, a journal published by the MIT Press. As I was thinking about Jim last night and thinking about what to say about him since I think this is the first, f- I, I warned him I was going to have some more to say, uh, the first formal uh, recognition of his retirement after decades of service I was thinking now if he was a professor, uh, we would call him emeritus. Um, but uh, I've noticed that uh, Congress is not exactly like a university, uh, so um, for better or for worse. So uh, but we don't do knighthoods, you know, because we it not leave in class. So um, I think I'll just settle for His Eminence Jim Turner. <laughs> Jim.
1: That's a very dangerous thing since uh, Jim Turner is a common name. And uh, on the transition team, I was confused with a former Congressman, Jim Turner, for months. And uh, uh, so, and I had, uh, I've had some, and I guess the uh, director of NIST was named Jim Turner for a lot of this last year. So the, uh, there are a lot more eminent Jim Turners than me. Uh, we on uh, the, this panel is the outgrowth of uh, several months of work of, uh, of a group. Uh, that has been looking at uh, uh, regional innovation largely. Uh, uh, we've, uh, uh, our group was uh, uh, I guess about tw- uh, 20 people and uh, very uh, very talented people from industry, from uh, uh, from universities, from government and uh, one of us, um, uh, Karen Mills already has a potential p- uh, uh, promotion and uh, so hopefully, some of us will actually be able to uh, carry out what we've been uh, been thinking about. The uh, uh, as you'll see in Marianne's talk, uh, pl- uh, place is very important in this. Uh, time is important. Timing is important, which uh, Jonathan has just mentioned, and uh, uh, there are, it, that's part of the the whole uh, social capital that I think we need to examine to get right right now. Uh, it's. We can have all the money in the world poured into a problem, but if we aren't organized to do it right, uh, the, then we're going to fail. So f- fortunately, we have uh, people who've done uh, a lot of thinking over the years about this uh, uh, who, are, who are willing to uh, write papers and, and be the panel today. And the order in which I'd like to introduce, or I'm told to introduce them, actually, and I'd like to as well, uh, uh, Marianne Feldman, who's a, a longtime friend of mine, uh, uh, who I know first when she was uh, at Johns Hopkins, and since she, then she's been at, at Toronto, uh, at Georgia, and now at University of North Carolina. As a distinguished professor, and even more distinguished professor, she's been moving through the, through the schools. The, uh, and She's uh, won a, a National Book Award on this topic, uh, just uh, has a very, uh, very distinguished career, been a speaker around the world, uh, very, uh, very sought after uh, in this area. And she probably is one of the few people truly qualified to talk about this because Marianne began as an economic geographer and uh, has studied a lot of, uh, for instance, she, uh, when I first knew her, she was uh, studying the 270 corridor, figuring out exactly uh, why the biotech industry got going there and came to the conclusion it was Department of Defense even more than, uh, than, than NIH. So this, this has been Marianne's career, and uh, I think it's now uh, Marianne's time, too. Rob, uh, a little different, uh, Rob Atkinson uh, will be the next speaker. A little bit uh, different background, but uh, uh, equally distinguished, uh, worked on these issues in Department of Commerce, uh, in the technology administration, uh, moved on to OTA, uh, uh, and then with other think tanks, and now has been been running his own think tank and been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of meetings, a lot of publishing in this area. uh, Richard Selene uh, will be our, our, our third speaker, and uh, he's been more on the, uh, the practical end of it. Uh, and uh, although he did uh, he did work in the government in the uh, in the, the Bush administration in, e- in EDA in, in, in economic development, and has uh, been uh, a very well known c- consultant for years, uh, and now is run- running his own business uh, in this area. Uh, Tom Khalil uh, uh, first uh, I, when I think probably almost uh, uh, right after he came to Washington started working in this area when he uh, when he was with Dewey Ballantyne uh, and I got to know him when he was working uh, US Japan issues thinking uh, thinking about competitiveness uh, then became a, a major player in, uh, in the Clinton transition the Clinton administration uh, in the uh, and was the reason a lot of, a lot of the, thing, the good things that uh, uh, the enhancements of a lot of the programs that, that we had put in place uh, but really wanted to, uh, but, but really needed to grow, grew dramatically, uh, especially during the first uh, two years of, of, of that administration, and uh, was a major force in keeping them alive when the, when the Congress uh, changed. And uh, now Tom has been um, in a leadership role on the transition team, thinking about how we. Uh, uh, get, back, uh, get back on track and uh, really um, uh, take advantage of, uh, uh, of what we know now, uh, having years of, years of experience, uh, uh, to, to, try, to uh, try to look at how we get to economic de- development going again. Uh, and with that, I, I'll turn it over to, to Mary Ann, and we'll talk later.
2: five minutes to talk about the academic literature on this topic. (laughs) And so um, there's been a lot written and I think um, this year Paul Krugman received the Nobel Prize and significantly his work in um, sort of what's called the New Economic Geography was highlighted. This idea that wage rates do not equalize over time with international trade between places and in fact rather than thinking about a flat world what we see is that what makes the world interesting are spikes, those places of high opportunity where there is a concentration of resources and a concentration of innovation. And so this is a long tradition in economics, um, going back to um, Alfred Marshall, who talks about the location of industries and finds that there are sort of certain things that make places more fortuitous for economic activity. And I think when we sort of envision the way the world is changing, um, we can think about instead of decreasing returns or constant returns, think about the increasing returns that are due to knowledge, to people collaborating and innovating and working together. Uh, For a long time, economists have been looking at the phenomenon um, associated with Silicon Valley and Route 128. But when we look beyond that to more mundane economic activity, we also see this pronounced tendency for things to cluster spatially, bringing together economic actors in a place, in a community, and people are more productive in certain locations than they are in others. And so we see this, you know, Elgin, Illinois has a concentration of. firms that are um, world-class in industrial pumps, and of all places, Toledo, Ohio is now internationally regarded as a leader in photovoltaics. Toledo is not a very sunny place, but Wall Street Journal wrote about this, and I was out there to visit, and it's incredible the way that resources coming together, people having a vision of what is possible in a local place are able to transform their local economy. And so, what we see is around the world, governments are looking for recipes, ways of finding competitiveness and um, sort of industrial excellence. And um, we know that good economies are built on strong microeconomics, and locational decisions are an important component of that. um, There's a lot of work now that looks at places that are relatively lagging or left behind, trying to restructure, to redefine themselves, and to find some competitive advantage. And I think that there are some interesting lessons for federal policy that come from a lot of the experiments that state and local governments have been engaged in over arguably um, since the 1980s. And so I think while there is a lot of emphasis on universities, what we recognize is that universities are only one anchor that a local economy can tie itself to. Large firms are another, but also having this sort of diverse fabric of small and medium-sized enterprises gives a lot of vitality. And, um, you know, while we think about building infrastructure, I think it's critical to realize that you build capacity, but that you also have to have a demand for that capacity. Um, There's an interesting book by Amity Schley called The Forgotten Man. And I thought of this because there's a lot of talk now about Roosevelt's legacy and whether the um, New Deal really did um, create economic growth. And what Amity Schley finds is that the New Deal sort of laid this foundation, created infrastructure, but what was missing was an emphasis on entrepreneurs, those entrepreneurs who would create innovation. And she calls them um, the, forgotten, the forgotten man, the forgotten person. And so I think that um, you know, that there is this staging problem of both creating infrastructure but then also supporting small and medium-sized enterprises. And when we look at the way that areas change frequently, when there are layoffs and downsizing, we get a new rush of entrepreneurship as people create new businesses. And that means, though, that you've got to have the development of markets and you've got to also have resources that ease that transition. Thank you.
3: Uh, Well, thank you very much. Uh, Thank you, Jim, and it's a pleasure to be here. I want to talk a little bit about a report that uh, we issued earlier this year with the Brookings Institution where we called for the creation of a National Innovation Foundation, essentially a new institution somewhat akin to NSF but focused on innovation. And as uh, my co-author Howard Weil and I were doing the research behind this report, we looked around the world and tried to find what, was other, what were other countries doing, and what we found was quite surprising and, and somewhat disturbing. Uh, virtually every other country that we could identify, an advanced industrial country with the exception of Canada and Germany, had either dramatically expanded or put in place a new initiative in the last decade focused explicitly on commercial innovation, uh, and most of them with a significant regional component. Uh, Just to give you an example, if uh, in the U.S. we have no explicit, certainly no explicit program, excuse me, agency or initiative to do that, we have a couple of small programs here and there, Uh, we estimated that we invest about $2.7 billion a year. Uh, That's actually on the generous side in commercial, explicitly in commercial innovation. Uh, If you compare that to other countries, if we were to invest what Finland does on a per GDP basis, per capita basis, we would have to invest $30 billion. If we, we match Sweden, we'd be at nine. If we match Korea, we'd be around six. Uh, in other words, these other countries invest significantly more than we do. And they do it specifically around commercial innovation. They don't just say science is enough. They all, by the way, have robust science policies. In fact, they've increased, most of those countries have increased their science funding at a more dramatic rate than we have, but they've also focused on innovation, much of it regionally based. So what's that all about? Um, What it's all about, I would argue, in the U.S. is the people who run economic policy in Washington, uh, whether they're on the right or the left, uh, largely uh, have consigned innovation and science to a, what you could call, innovation policy ghetto. It's seen as this thing over here that those people do, us. Okay. So we're not in Tom's was in the NEC, so I give Tom credit for that. Uh, but the real power uh, in Washington are uh, the neoclassical economists who essentially uh, take their marching orders, if you will, from the 1946 Employment Act. And after the 1946 Employment Act, it basically said the focus of U.S. economic policy is on two things. It's on the business cycle, which we see today, and it's largely about prices. It's not about long-term growth, and it's not about structure. Now, when you sort of make those choices, that what you're going to do as a profession, as an economics profession, and as a sort of discipline in Washington, advising the administration and legislators... Uh, that you're not going to really focus on growth and you're not going to really focus on innovation, Uh, you largely then can put innovation and science over to the side in its own little ghetto because it's not really all that important. If, on the other hand, you say that you're going to have one of the central center, the center points of your economic policy is economic growth, and the way you, one of the things you have to be critically concerned about is what is the structure of your economy? How is your economy structured to maximize growth? not just do you have price signals right and assume the structure takes care of itself, then if you have that as part of your charge, which neoclassical economists, whether they're at Brookings or AEI or other places, don't have that as their charge, then you start to focus explicitly on innovation. And I remember uh, Marianne and I actually both have a uh, background in economic geography and I remember my very first course in my doctoral program, I was reading an article, and I, now, of course, I can't remember the article. Marianne probably remember. But it was Economic Growth or Economic Development. And it was a very interesting article. And uh, the point was that what this is about is not growth but about development. In other words, when you think, why, why is it called economic development at the state level and not economic growth policy? Because it's explicitly oriented to development, and development means thinking about how do you change the structure of your economy to evolve towards better ones. And that's really what states do. That's what Mary Ann's research has been focusing on, is how do states think about intervening in their economies to create structures that are going to be more sustainable going forward? So what our view is is that you have to then think about how do we create, how do we get the federal government to support and enable those regional efforts? One of the things that uh, I think is interesting, and I've talked with Jim about this, um, when we, really the last time we had a serious initiative in the government on innovation policy was uh, this period between 89 and 94, Uh, the Omnibus Trade and Competitiveness Act, MEP and and other things like that. Uh, At that time, the states weren't doing all that much. They were doing some in innovation policy and science policy, but certainly not as much as they're doing today. And so as a result, Congress and the administration designed a whole set of programs that largely ignored what the states were doing. And I think if we were doing it again today from scratch, we wouldn't do that. We would design an explicit set of federal programs that, that have a key partnership with states and regions in order to spur innovation. Let me just say two more things um, about that. Why is that important? It's important because, as such a large country, there is just—it's simply impossible for Washington to engage with small and medium-sized enterprises at that at the level we need to. To think about how the economy of of uh, Toledo differs from the economy of Elgin, Illinois, where actually I worked one summer in Elgin, Illinois, or Silicon Valley, or. Montgomery, Alabama, or a whole set of, only the states and regions can get that level of knowledge uh, that's needed to do that. But they can't do it on their own. They systematically underinvest. Uh, they spend about uh, probably 10 times more on industrial recruitment than they do on innovation because it provides a very short term, easy hit. Governors can point to it. There are no spillovers or very few, either by time or by space. Therefore, there's a market failure, if you will, and it's a role for government to play. So what we suggest is we need to create this NIF. It would combine, in our view, several existing programs, MEP and ATP and, well, now TIP and NIST, uh, Manufacturing Extension Partnership Program, Technology Innovation Program, several programs out of NSF that are sort of the weak sisters over at NSF. They're there, but they don't really get attention at NSF. The, The IURC program and the Engineering Research Center program and a couple others put it in this new, uh, agency, which could be run out of NIST, it could be a separate agency, and focus on uh, several different things, but one of them being a state-federal regional innovation partnership program that we would see funded at about, uh, about a billion dollars a year. Let me just close by saying, uh, you know, there's been a lot of debate about should R&D be in the stimulus package, uh, and I think a lot of sort of, uh, Uh, frankly uh, ill-guided advice being given that somehow it shouldn't be. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't think about putting some level of increased R&D in the stimulus package, whether it's uh, potentially increasing the rate of uh, NSF awards, Uh, But clearly, one could envision a a modest grant program that, through EDA or through NIST, that would support state innovation efforts uh, in the stimulus package and would really get them to be able to ramp up their efforts that would both create jobs in the short run and growth and innovation in the long run. So thank you very much.
4: As uh, Rob noted when I was being introduced by Jim uh, Turner, I am the um, uh, I am not the thinker. I take that as a compliment. I also apologize. That I have not powdered my forehead to blind you from uh, the lack of hair to the lights. Um, I want I want to commend um, uh, the the cap in um, those of you who are gathered here because if you think about it. <clears throat> a little over a week from today, we um, transition our government, um, and it's um, kind of fortuitous that we do this uh, in a time and a period where there is not only a lot of political uh, but economic turmoil, and we seem to be doing this in a way that a lot of places around the world still envy us. And I think that we ought to, Jonathan, periodically step back and realize that um, uh, that we do this in that context. But mm-hmm. the second. Uh, context that, that we do this transition is um, with a significant, overwhelming, more than I could ever imagine, amount of expectation, Tom, on this new administration coming in. Um, and I think it's an expectation that actually can be met, but only met by, frankly, a discussion that's being held uh, this morning um, around two or three issues that you've heard so far. So let me jump into a couple of um, of thoughts that... that um, we have. Um, first off, we come into our work and our agenda, so to speak, where <clears throat> we view innovation as a social process. It's not a product or a service. It's a really, truly about the connectivity, the trust building, the collaboration, and ultimately the translation of uh, discovery to products and services. If you buy into that context, that innovation is not a product, but it is the, the trust, the connectivity. The collaboration Then, what we have found over uh through uh, a number of well over 100 projects in the us and now a little bit more around the world is that there's obviously several pathways to innovation and we all seem to have either found our own or we have somehow collectively come to the conclusion that there is a um, uh, frankly one path to innovation i think we all recognize that that is not true Although one of the things I will um, admit to uh, Jonathan and to to Jim is that I actually have become an advocate for what is called innovation in spite of, and that is that people who act and progress regardless of meetings like this, policy discussions, much less sitting in rooms anywhere debating the concentration of power within uh, a Congress or a White House. Um, And I will also. Uh, incite you a little bit more uh, that in innovation in spite of is part of the reason why you have a lot of technology in your pocket or in your purse. Um, so if, if we look at this, that innovation and policy here's another one just to be provocative. See when you're not an intellect you get to be provocative and leave the room.
5: <clears throat>
4: That's a laughter of admittance. Um, I, I kind of look at innovation and policy Rob, as truly as antithesis to each other. right? One is to operate in a free and borderless environment, while one acts supposedly within boundaries, fixed to timelines, as policy is pretty much perceived. It's ruled by a set of limiting factors or very specific definitions, if that's what some people view policy as. So what can be the in our minds, uh, a question. So what can possibly be the highest common denominator between innovation and policy? If you take a look at innovation is just open, in a sense, borderless activity, and policy is to define certain amount of rules of engagement, um, what is the possible linkages between the two? Um, And one of those uh, linkages is obviously the context between economic and societal benefit. I mean, we do this, I think, not only to make money, but we do this to ultimately find solutions for society. And I will tell you anecdotally, um, and I apologize to anybody who doesn't fit this age category, but in literally hundreds of interviews with chancellors, presidents, provosts, and VPs of research, we are finding a generational split between the next generation of research superstars and the current generation and the current generation does not accept commercialization as a potential uh, method for ultimately solving societal benefit. Now, you're gonna argue with me, but I will tell you that in listening to every uh, uh, president chancellor that we've talked with, all of their recruitment of these research superstars under 45 come down to two questions, Marianne. One is, who do I get to play with in the research sandbox? and what's your commercialization atmosphere in the community and region for which I sit, all right? Um, I told you I was gonna be a little bit provocative, Jim. Um, all right, then, the, then the, the, the fourth context for innovation, innovation policy is supposedly intentional uh, of trying to figure out who is doing what and how, and where can we, in a sense, move it forward around from a national perspective of what I refer to or what many of you refer to as grand challenges. Now, I I gotta take a little show of hands. Are we at a period where we've kinda now gotten to a series of significant enough grand challenges? Okay, all right. Lower common denominator, I mean, we're at a pretty interesting period. So where ultimately we started looking at is policy that does, Jim, what we are hoping and that is that it is both unleashing innovation and unleashing policy. Means the best means of analysis leading to quantifiable results in real sustainable performance is frankly what all of this activity is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be finding what's working and in a sense accelerating those results. Have I mentioned to you that the United States still works under a framework that is in the 18th and 19th century and to some degree is based on, I hate to say this, interventions of failure, not interventions of opportunity. Now the way we look at it is, and you see it in the science progress uh, paper that we were asked to contribute, I think one of the best things to do is to go back and take a look at some pilot projects, and there's three pilot projects that we've been involved in, one for the CIA called NQTEL, I-N and T-E-L is intelligence, and Q is James Bond's Q, And the idea was to basically unleash $50 million a year or so into unfettered entrepreneurship and innovation between the intelligence community, entrepreneurs, and academia. And if you go over here to Clarendon in Washington, D.C., and other places around the United States, you will see how that bridging effect has occurred between the intelligence community why would an entrepreneur want to deal with the intelligence community when I get everything black boxed? Trust me, if you look at the model, what it came down to is very specific policy that said we have grand challenges in the intelligence community, and we need to unleash the best of the minds. Second is um, an uh, initiative a couple of years ago that some of you may or may not have heard, heard of, and I won't complain about the administration, the current one, dampening down the potential impact. and that is the National Cancer Institute came up with a strategy to identify once and for all what it would take to eradicate cancer by 2012. That's a small challenge, all right? And ultimately what it, it, the reality was that there are four billion dollars a year of federal funds that go out across the United States to 68 comprehensive cancer centers in a strategy that is very organized and very constructive um, along the lines of, uh, of getting money from Washington out to the hands of researchers, but I'm not sure if we're anywhere close to eradicating cancer um, at this stage um, because there are a lack of innovation incentives. And then finally, one other area is WIRED, which stood, stands for Workforce Innovations for Regional Economic Development, for which we finally realized that the $17 billion of federally funded workforce monies could actually go into regions and spur collaboration, trust, and a different type of intervention connecting workforce, economic development, and innovation. What I'm summarizing on is this point. We've done it, and we need to stop doing it episodically and make it the standard. Thank you.
6: Well, good morning. Um, with the with minor exception of, of the weather, having to wear a suit and tie, uh, uncomfortable black shoes, uh, the lack of good bread, uh, and being 3,000 miles away from my family, it, it's great to be back. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I wanted to make three quick points. So the first is, in addition to uh, Mary Ann's point about uh, innovation being local, I think innovation is, is also specific. Um, And uh, I wrote an article a while ago in which uh, I noted that in the same way that uh, William Gibson said uh, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed, um, the capacity of various parts of the federal government to promote innovation also uh, varies widely. Um, So if something is related to the revolution in uh, military affairs, we have organizations like DARPA that have a, a reasonably good track record of promoting innovation. Uh, but if we think about affordable green housing uh, or if we think about promoting uh, non-health applications of biology um, the, uh, or, or we think about promoting um, innovation in, in education and lifelong learning, <clears throat> where we invest uh, 0.1% of K-12 through expenditures in, in research and development, the federal government does uh, a, a a really uh, either non-existent or, or mediocre job. So I, I think in addition to this notion of uh, examining the, the local dimension of innovation, thinking about the specific nature of innovation and whether over time we could upgrade uh, the capacity of the federal government to identify uh, barriers, you know, removing barriers or or incentives uh, to encourage innovation uh, I think would be a really interesting and worthwhile uh, policy project. The second point that I wanted to make um, from the perspective of uh, working at UC Berkeley uh, since 2001, I, I think there's a lot that universities can do. Uh, to I- encourage uh, technology-based economic development and accelerate uh, the movement of ideas fr- from the lab to the marketplace, um, <coughs> and university presidents, um, the one uh, one of the powers that they actually do have. You know, we think about uh, a, a university as being a, a thousand faculty united by a common concern for parking, uh, uh, but. Um, the, uh, the one of the things that university presidents do have is, is the ability could, to shape the fundraising agenda. Uh, and you could certainly see the, the leadership of higher education saying, we're really going to make this issue a, a priority both in terms of policy and fundraising. And they might uh, go out <coughs> working with their successful alumni. Uh, and raise the money uh, for programs like the Deshpande Center at MIT, which has done a really good job of, of gap funding and providing support for entre- the type of entrepreneurial faculty. Uh, or like Cornell has done about <coughs> viewing something, entrepreneurship as something that needs to be done across the curriculum as opposed to an activity that MBAs engage in. Uh, or. Intellectual property policies that are aimed at maximizing the impact of the research as opposed to the revenue from the university. Uh, In many sectors, um, I I think the the goal should be to use non-exclusive royalty-free licensing, uh, particularly outside of the the life sciences sector, as a a way to rapidly make uh, intellectual property available. Promoting more interdisciplinary research and education. Investing in shared facilities that are uh, open uh, not only to researchers but to, uh, to firms in the areas. Uh, liberal industrial leave policy uh, that allows faculty to in, in become the CEO or CTO of a startup that they're engaged in. Uh, venture capitalists never want to invest in a firm unless the people who develop the technology and have all of the tacit knowledge surrounding that technology, all the things that didn't work, um, uh, are, are involved. So I think there's a lot that universities can do. Um, and I, I think it, it would be, uh, you know, we talk about the social contract uh, between uh, the, the public uh, and the taxpayer on the one hand and the research community on the other hand. And, and I think that this would be a, a show of good faith on the part of uh, research universities to show that they're really serious about playing an important role in economic development and and job creation. Third point I'd make is that (coughs) we we have a tendency when we think about this to keep coming back to the same set of case studies, whether it's Route 128 uh, or Silicon Valley. Um, And I think that uh, there are a number of case studies that don't get enough attention. Uh, In particular, I'd point to San Diego uh, as a region where uh, the, Uh, the role that UC San Diego and and an organization uh, called Connect played uh, was really important in getting that wireless and and biotech cluster started. And it wasn't a lot of money. Uh, It was civic leadership. Uh, It was uh, pulling together all the stakeholders. It was trying to figure out how everyone could succeed um, that I think played an important role. The second type of case study that I would be interested in seeing a lot more of is... Uh, regions that are building on existing assets to figure out how they can take what they have uh, and do technological upgrading as opposed to saying, we're going to compete uh, in biotech uh, with uh, Massachusetts, uh, Research Triangle Park, uh, the Bay Area, and San Diego. Uh, Because I have to say, uh, that's pretty hard. Um, and, and I'm not sure what uh, the returns as associated with regions um, that are far behind in that area saying we are going to create de novo uh, a major regional advantage uh, in, in biotech and, and, and catch up to some of those regions. So I, I have an easier time believing a story of saying, all right, what existing assets do we have and how can we take – Uh, new product and and process innovations and supercharge uh, some of the existing uh, uh, industries and and, uh, uh, technologies and services that we currently have. Um, On the policy side, um, I I really uh, like and admire the work that uh, Rob has done on this National Innovation Foundation. Uh, One obvious concern is uh, that we're not even uh, funding the uh, stuff for which there is wild bipartisan agreement for. Uh, so there was broad support for the America Competes Act. Uh, and, uh, and despite that, uh, we have yet to see any real appropriations for that. So I'm a little worried about creating yet another entity, uh, a- and and hoping that, um, that we'll be able to get additional funding for that as well. I, I think something that is... Uh, probably a little bit more incremental than Rob would like uh, is to take some of the existing programs uh, like the University Industry Collaborative Research Center, like the uh, Partnerships for Innovation, uh, programs in DOD like the Army's uh, Collaboration Technology Alliances, and uh, a program called Government Industry Co-Sponsorship of University Research, and to see, as at least as a first step, uh, whether we can get some additional funding into those t- to start these. University-industry uh, collaborations going, uh, and and I think that could be a, a quick win uh, because the amount of money that the National Science Foundation puts into these programs uh, is really small, uh, and I think uh, with a small amount of attention and budget, uh, we could uh, really get some things going uh, right out of the box, and so. Um, <clears throat> while it would be nice to have a 35 billion dollar version of, uh, Techish, uh, Rob, I, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to get there on, on day one, but I do think that there are, are some exist-, are <laughs> existing programs th- that, we could build on and, and get some things, uh, started right away. Thank you.
1: Okay, uh, and we've used a lot of our, uh, uh, question period, I think, for, uh, uh, for me and for the panel already, but it was more important to, uh, uh, to get the views of, uh, the panelists out. Uh, so I'm going to ask just two or three questions and then, uh, m- move on to the audience for, uh, for more, uh, for more questions. And, uh, one, one basic question, uh, that I have for the panel is that, uh, if we're looking back to, uh, where we were in, uh, uh 1994 before we started facing uh budget cuts in uh, in these uh programs and we're starting and we're talking as Tom uh, was saying in uh, in terms of adding funds into uh, some of these programs uh 1994 is is a long way in the past and it's uh before it's essentially before the internet it's before uh uh Innocentive. it's before a lot of ways a lot of ways that people were uh uh, that are now it, it's before web 2.0 the different ways that people communicate uh now and the the question is uh, are there cha- are there changes that that we need to be making to uh uh to uh take advantage of where technology has uh moved in the, in the past uh 14 years uh as we think about uh enhancing programs is is there uh, Structural cha- is there a structural change we need to be making in those programs as well as uh, as adding funds in there? Tom,
6: <clears throat> absolutely. So I, you know, I, obviously, even the way we change is changing, and <clears throat> what I think um, is required is for policymakers uh, to identify some of those things and to say, all right, what are the policy implications that flow from that? So you mentioned incentive and the whole uh, open innovation movement. Um, I think one of the things, you know, if I were at EPA running their green chemistry program, uh, I would be developing a partnership with the chemical industry to say, uh, what are the top ten challenges in green chemistry? Uh, The government will cost share those with you and will uh, post those to Innocentive and have uh, 160,000 solvers working on them. I think that would be an interesting example. of. Uh, an experiment to try. Similarly, the whole notion of collaboratories, if we were to take one of Rob's uh, proposed (coughs) university industry uh, collaborations, I would definitely want a couple of them to be saying, how do we maximize the use of e-science and collaboratories where we have um, (coughs) cloud computing, network scientific instruments, uh, huge data sets, uh, tools for uh, remote collaboration, data visualization, and to see whether that would accelerate uh, the pace uh, of of not only research and discovery, but also commercialization. So those are just, uh, uh, you know, having another collaboration that is, designed to explore the notions of uh, user-driven innovation that um, uh, scholars at MIT have talked about uh, might be another example.
2: I always go back to, you mentioned my early work looking at Washington DC and Route 270. And I was at Hopkins at the time, and I was convinced that biotech was going to be the next big thing, because that's what we saw at Hopkins. I was one day talking to a venture capitalist and he said, it's a really interesting thing going on in Northern Virginia. They call it the internet. God knows what it's going to be, but it's probably going to be big. And You know, that was really humbling to me at the time and it's, it's always, as we think about places trying to, local communities trying to become viable, I think that a critical thing is that We can never predict where the market's going to go, what's going to be the next big technology. The best that we can do is to make sure that people are well-educated. And when we look at universities, I mean, we see that tech transfer is only a really small part of the economic contribution of American universities to their local economies and to economic Mm -hmm. growth and development. And right now, universities are facing burgeoning enrollment students in the absence of uh, absence of being able to find well-paying jobs are returning to schools, and that's placing a lot of burden on us and it's sort of you know sort of is I think a rethinking of our role uh, you talked a lot about um, universities and I think if we want to get the economy going we need to invest in universities for our longer term growth and that's going to be critically important but there are lots of other things that we should do to get more shorter-term, immediate growth going.
4: I'll play off both of what Tom said and and Marianne said um, very, very quickly. I won't name the city, and I won't name the community, I won't name the state, um, but it's also almost the common man's approach. When you talk about the knowledge economy, um, what we keep on bumping into are governors and mayors who are saying, I don't know how to tax it. It, I, it, takes mon- it, ta- it takes real estate off the tax rolls. Therefore, I don't know how to tax it. I don't, under- I don't understand it. I guess what I'm, what I'm playing off of, Tom, is what you've noted, what, what Rob has noted, um, and that is I think we need to find ways to fund innovation intermediaries. And it's not brick and mortar. It is a whole set of a new generation of people who play this connect role that San Diego did. I mean, having worked with uh, uh, Mary uh, out in San Diego enough on on what the Connect program did.
6: Walshock. Thank you,
4: thank you. <laughs> it's a senior moment with Mary Walshock. Uh, you know, and looked at the Connect model, and Mary, and you've looked at a lot of this as as well. I think the opportunity is is the connection between the National Innovation Fund and even though we may need to do it incrementally, is to start funding a generation of of individuals who are innovation intermediaries, these people who make these connections. And for some reason, getting the EDA and a couple of the other places in this town to understand that that um, may be more efficient and ways to translate innovation um, just seems to be a difficult discussion, difficult pitch.
1: Okay, I, let me switch a little bit to uh, uh, playing off uh, things that uh, Robin uh, Richard brought up. Uh, Richard was talking about there being a real uh, generational change, and one thing I've noticed uh, with engineering students at Virginia is, compared to say the year two thousand, uh, every one of them has international on their mind, or they all want international experiences. Uh, they wouldn't mind if their uh, their first job was w- was overseas, and uh, they just have a much bigger worldview than than uh, than my generation had. Uh, the, se- the second thing is that uh, Rob brought up international and uh, and saying that talking about some of the countries uh, that, that were were truly uh, innovative. And I'm wondering, uh, we're talking about Finland. Uh, when uh, I went over with the National uh, Academies uh, to. Uh, uh, to look at uh, innovation in Finland and uh, uh, the, the stepboard uh, which uh, brought the state of Maine along, which uh, I thought was uh, very, very interesting because uh, if you add say the Bosnarian state of maine going going north it, it isn't a whole lot different in, than saying Helsinki in a whole lot of woods uh, uh, so, so <laughs> and uh, so it was it was a, it was a, a logical way to go. And I would like to ask the panel: To what extent should we be building uh, international into uh, our new uh, innovation policy? And are, are the what are the trade-offs?
3: What uh, how should we think about that? Well, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people talk about what other countries are doing. So Finland is a big international initiative, and Taiwan has a big international initiative. All these countries do. Uh, I was, I see Kent Hughes here, I think. I was on a panel with Kent uh, at Kent's, uh, the Wilson Center, moderated a panel with a gentleman who was the head of the Taiwan Research Institute, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's the biggest research institute in Taiwan, and many credit it to really being, being the, the, behind the Taiwanese economic and technology miracle, I think it's... Etri. Etri, yeah, Etri. And um, so he was saying how important it is for them to do this international uh, outreach and to not worry about where innovation comes from and all this. And people were saying, oh, what a great idea. We need to do the same. So I asked him. I said, well, okay, let me ask you a question. If you were to go to your board uh, in two years when you do your strategic review and you showed that you had really ramped up international partnerships and that 92% of all your licensing was done now by foreign firms who commercialized it outside the country, Uh, and uh, 82% of your patents were by companies outside of Taiwan, Uh, do you think they'd be happy? He said, no, absolutely not. The reason we're doing international innovation is for only one reason, because it's going to benefit Taiwan. And I think we lose that. There are a lot of people in the U.S. who somehow, I think, overemphasize international linkages, uh, and I think the reason those countries are doing it is because they're small, there is no way those countries can build markets uh, build a market big enough for their entrepreneurs without getting access to partners and other innovators and certainly markets outside we 're not in that position, and so Well, Jim, I'm very sensitive to this notion that we should be expanding our horizons and thinking internationally, we've got to actually focus, I think, and and remember what the bottom line here. Every single other country understands that they're in an international competitive race to get high-value-added jobs to their country. We don't seem to sort of think that way. We think it's okay and doesn't really matter and da-da-da, and I think we have to remember that. So it's not to say we shouldn't do more internationally. We just have to remember it's a means and it's not an end.
2: I also um, just want to reiterate that point that I think that we really need to focus a little bit more inward, and so that doesn't mean protectionist, but I think that we have really had um, tremendous hollowing out of manufacturing capabilities. And we recognize that when you think about innovation, having the ability to make things is very important to understanding incrementally how you move that economy, your economy forward. You can think about it as, you know, financially you invest in a portfolio, and that probably when we think about where we want to make our investments in the economy, it should similarly follow a portfolio approach. And when we think about local places, I mean, your point, Tom, about um, you want to build upon your what it is in an area that is unique and not easily replicated by other areas. Where is that competitive advantage? And it's gonna be highly differentiated. And what we've had is, you know, sort of looking elsewhere, we're all looking to the same industries, biotech, nanotech, advanced um, materials, and not sort of understanding there are lots of really mundane things that people need. Right now, I see a lot of business plans. My students are so into local food, and this sort of slow food movement, and you know, trying to build businesses that are pretty mundane, but you know, food is pretty recession-proof. People always need wow. to eat. And one of the things that they've unearthed is that there are very few Um, manufacturing um, meat processing plants anymore they're all part of vertically integrated corporations so if you're a small organic farmer you can't find the sort of middlemen that help you go to market tremendous opportunities a very small sort of bottleneck that if you can address really would help um, sort of create um, economic viability for some rural communities in North Carolina
4: I couldn't disagree more (laughs) (laughs) saying that with a wink to my, to my friends. Um, we, we've all, uh, and I'm going to be a real heretic, and Atkinson, you're going to have to cover me. Um, <laughs> we, we, we've all bought into a Michael Porter theory about clusters, that everything has to be based locally, or that it has to be proximate, and not realize that what we have is 68 of, 68% of the global pharmaceutical industry is outsourced. 70 percent of the defense industry is outsourced. We have, it's not offshore. Well, think about this. We are an outsourced, networked, <clears throat> permanent business model. And one of the challenges, I think, um, in the States, Jim, is we have companies that are referred to as national companies in the United States. They're global companies. They're going to operate wherever they need to operate. They're going to find markets and resources wherever they need to, to do. So I think we're kind of in a, a very, Mary I'm saying this truly tongue-in-cheek, I agree with a majority of what you said. It's, but the fact of the matter is, is that we have to truly understand the business models of what industry is doing right now. And they're all very, very distinct. And then at the same time, there are industries that are responding in very creative ways to the energy uh, cost, the energy crisis, by saying more local. So I I think we need to get out of, Tom, a framework that at a national level says every industry – operates in every same type of framework and every opportunity is going to be described where some of it's going to have to be international because that is the way that the these large corporations are working versus some of the next emerging companies and emerging talent.
2: In the literature, people talk about this as local buzz, that is, there's something about that day-to-day social interaction that enriches your life, enriches your economic processes, but you don't want to be too inward-looking. You've got to be connected to global pipelines, right? So, you know, sort of... In integrating both of these, I think, you know, becomes important. And to play off the food analogy, I mean, I think that there are multiple recipes and that recipes are adapted to uh, to build on local things.
6: Uh, Jim, you, you mentioned uh, young people. And uh, one of the favorite parts of my job at UC Berkeley is, is running a program at Berkeley called uh, Big Ideas. Uh, and if I can put in a shameless plug for it, you can fi- find out more information at bigideas.berkeley.edu. The premise of the program is that students have big ideas, and as opposed to the model where uh, faculty members write grants and then hire graduate students to do most of the work, this program uh, tries to, to find and fund uh, students who are, are passionate about something. Um, and a lot of them are really interested in the intersection between innovation and global development and improving the human condition. And they're coming up with extraordinary ideas, like uh, using a cell phone uh, to do telemedicine, uh, or developing uh, an $8 water filter that can be used uh, to reduce dysentery in the the slums of Mumbai, uh, or figuring out how to access uh, carbon markets to accelerate the deployment of uh cleaner burning cook stoves that would reduce uh, mortality from um, uh, indoor air pollution. So all, all sorts of extraordinary ideas, and I, uh, students are looking for uh, meaning in their lives in, a, in addition to traditional uh, material success, uh, and I think uh, finding these students and, and supporting them uh, is a way in which the United States is going to have a lot more people who understand what it's going to take to succeed uh, in the, these, uh, emerging markets as well.
1: At this point, I'd like to turn to questions from the audience and, uh, uh you have the microphone, great. And, well, we can start here.
5: <coughs> My name is Martin Apple. I'm president of the Council of Scientific Society Presidents. I want to just point out two things that are relatively important. One is that the last quarter of the 20th century, the paradigm of globalization got into science and technology, and it's not going to go away. And in fact, the connectivity is exponentially rising. Second is that in the 21st century, the paradigm that's really becoming dominant among the science community is clearly sustainability. It's not just innovating. It's innovating in a way that's sustainable for the planet and the future. And I think to dis- disregard either one with the notion that we could just plow ahead and our economic development doesn't have to pay attention to that is a real misfortune.
3: Hector with Executive
7: Intelligence Review. Um, my question is more directed towards the third speaker. He will prompt this. But, um, I tend to find discussions on economics, although it's relieving to have it in the context of innovation, but I generally find discussion on economics fairly bogus when they fail to discuss the fact that we live in the context of a failed banking system. So how do you expect to push any of the, I don't know, proposals that you might have, whatever they be, without the aid of a bankruptcy reorganization?
3: Uh, that's what Treasury is supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> not to be, be flip, um, I encourage you, actually, Now, now we, we all have to advertise websites. So uh, mine, if you're interested in it, one we created, innovationeconomics.org. And I encourage you to go there. By the way, you can take a test that uh, my 17-year-old son uh, built the back end for, uh, which will tell you what your economic type is. And if you do that, um, you'll find you're one of four types. You're either a conservative neoclassicalist, liberal neoclassicalist, Keynesian, or innovation economist. Uh, and the innovation economists are people like Paul Romer and, um, and Richard Nelson and, and Darren, uh, I'm going to get his name wrong, Asagu at, uh, I'm getting totally wrong, up at MIT, um, and Marianne. Um, <laughs> But it's a di- totally different paradigm, and it basically says that institutions are what you ought to be looking at, not the financial system. It's not to say you can ignore the financial system or the price system, but that's not what's driving growth and innovation today. So you have to have a good one, which we don't right now, but that, at the end of the day, getting a good one is, is basically just the laying the conditions for growth and innovation. It's not doing it in and of itself. So you have to think about, innova- you have to think about institutions, like, for example, how are we spurring health IT? What kind of broadband do we have? What sort of research university system do we have? Those are the kinds of critical questions we have to ask. Conventional economics doesn't really think about that much, so.
6: Sure, Uh, David McDonough, Johns Hopkins. Uh, First of all, thank you for hosting this. This is a great session. I love hearing the different tactical ideas, but isn't the real
3: question today figuring out how, we have the new administration
6: adopt as a strategic element of their next 4, 8, 10, 12 years an approach to dealing with innovation. And my question is, how do we get what the equivalent is of Tom Daschle looking at health care in the White House to have a similar group in the White House bringing together different cabinet agencies
3: to look at this topic? Tom can do that, but let me throw off (laughs) (laughs) I think one idea that's very actionable and could be done, and Tom could be the guy, uh, or Mary Ann, uh, is to put in place some some position in NEC that is explicitly focused on regional innovation. It just simply doesn't have a home in Washington. I think it's big enough. I think it's important enough, whether it's around... Uh, intelligence stuff that you talked about, or healthcare, all these other things—the regional component is missing—and somebody at NEC could really be honchoing all of that if, they, if we wanted to make that
4: happen. You know how hard it was, David, getting 18 federal agencies to sit down and talk about workforce as a common thrust of competitiveness in local communities. So, Tom, my pitch is: is that you pull roots up out of California come back here and head up the regional innovation office because one of the the simplest rob exactly what you're saying is getting these federal agencies who are all putting money and have regional offices and regional you know is getting them all to actually determine where their handoffs are or where their leverages are we think it it is so obvious but man the doing is just phenomenally difficult and it should be at a point in our lives the most simple uh, obvious approach so, Tom, when are you
6: coming?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
8: yeah. uh, Joe Bartlett, uh, big mouth in this area. I- is there any academic work? And I and I am a true believer. Uh, uh, quickly, Credit Suisse has a uh, a memorandum which points out it does a lot of in-state initiatives to promote innovation. That state of Michigan, there are fifty. by my count, uh, initiatives on the ground, partnerships, funding, Uh, is there any academic work or any critical work that would uh, learn the lessons from the initiatives that are out there now? And if you multiply 50 by 50, you get uh, 250. What works and what doesn't? Do we ever apply, say, Sarbanes-Oxley Section 404 to the initiatives on the ground. All of them have supporters. All of them do good work. But anybody separating the correlatives from the causatives and saying, this is what we've learned from what's uh, happened in the past, and we'll use those lessons uh, uh, in the future when we start spending money. (laughs)
2: <laughs> okay, everybody looks to me. So um, actually...
6: Where, are, where are the randomized controlled trials on regional mean, economic yeah. development? You
2: know, <laughs> and so 50 states, like the good news is 50 you can count. The, you know, the bad news is 50 is not really enough observations to run regressions on or do any of those other things. And also programs change and evolve over time. I currently have a project funded by NSF looking at state science policy. And the very first thing was just trying to come up with a typology of what are the different kinds of instruments and mechanisms, what are the pressure points, and then what what sort of fits in certain kinds of circumstances. And so we've been looking at R&D tax credits, at eminent scholar programs. And um, 501c3s, these quasi publics. But there are a whole variety of both capacity building. As well as sort of conduit deepening, these things that create university industry partnerships or partnerships between different sizes of firms. And it's a very rich mix. But I think it's, you know, sort of you can, um, you know, so we're just at the point of starting to try to understand this. And then economies change over time, too. So it's luckily I'm young enough that there's enough work to keep me busy for a while. But, you know, the truth is that I think that there is a certain amount of, you need to look forward and you need to sort look at a variety of these and see what has worked in certain points. And I think, to me, one of the big opportunities that we have to what we can do now is that we see that um, labor is much less mobile than capital. And when you look at the growth of Research Triangle Park, um, it started with R&D labs for big corporations, some government labs. But then what happened is with downsizing, we had this rush of entrepreneurship. And it was really individuals being, losing their jobs or feeling that their jobs were insecure and then making this transition to self-employment. And some of that was using the local resources, the networks, the connections that they had to um, sort of engage um, you know, viably in a new business. And I think here, you know, to your point about what can government do, government is a critically important lead user. And so, getting in with procurement um, in a in a very strategic way, you really could stimulate a lot of innovation and entrepreneurship.
3: I just add real quick. I'm a little more optimistic, maybe, than Marianne, because her standard is a is a scholarly one, and mine is not. Um, <laughs> you know, we're not going to be able to prove this quantitatively or econometrically um, for a lot of different reasons. But there is an enormous amount of expert knowledge and judgment and learning that's gone on in the last 20 years and 10 years. People don't sit around and randomly do things and don't learn from them. There's an awful lot of that. Richard's been doing a lot of that work. Other people have done the work. We documented in a report called the State New Economy Index on our site. There's a group called State Science and Technology Institute, SSTI.org, that has a lot of those studies. It's not like we're just doing this randomly. There's an awful lot of uh, good work about what is generally a good thing to do and what generally is a
4: bad thing to do. Hey, but, Joe, here's here's the problem. We don't kill anything. Um, sorry, but I thought I might as well just throw that in the mix. I just got a phone call from the governor's office in, North, in South Dakota. She's got 15,000 jobs. Nobody wants to move to South Dakota, and there's people who are looking for work all over the country. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend a lot of money to create a lot of jobs or seem to create a lot of jobs in those places when there are all over the United States job gaps. At the same time, we have populations and locations in the United States that I call the 70 by 70 by 70. 70% of the population is over the age of 70 and votes 70% of the time against any initiative that will help them grow. Why do we keep on supporting those folks? Sorry. I get John here.
8: I'm John Piha, I'm with uh, the Federal Communications Commission and Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, With my university hat on, 15 years ago I was working with the state of Pennsylvania to identify ways that universities could work with the the manufacturing and service powers of western Pennsylvania. Uh, Today I see more and more of the collaborations that the university does are I mean, meaningful, real-time, day-to-day collaborations with institutions across the country and across the world. Um, I've heard that university collaborations make a difference. I've heard that regions make a difference. I believe you both. But does this change uh, significantly the way we need to do collaborations uh, and the policies we set? I don't think it
3: does. I, I think I know what you're saying, John, in the sense of, you know, I, I, I think about academics uh, and universities, frankly, as uh, like corporations. They're going to go where the market is, and that's their incentive to go where the market is. That's not the role of government. The role of government is to realign your incentives. And if it's Pennsylvania government, it's to realign them for the benefit of Pennsylvania. And if it's the federal government, to realign them for the benefit of the US. So I understand why academic researchers partner globally. I understand why universities set up centers globally and all that stuff and transfer all, all, all sorts of knowledge over to other countries. I'm not sure it's in our interest for you to do that, uh, but I would do it too if I didn't have any programs or incentives or the lack thereof to p- focus you more domestically. So I don't mean to say that, you know, that collaboration is not important. And certainly on Marty's point on science, that's a total, uh, to me that's a different issue. Science is globally collaborative. It should be. Innovation, I would argue, is a little bit different. You, their place matters in innovation, and and we want our institutions in the U.S. to have that as a part of their mission and their goal and how they're held accountable. Frankly, like other countries do, and and we don't as much.
1: We get someone in the back of whoever's farthest back. My
6: name is Dennis McDonald. Um, I'm a social media strategist. This is a question for Mr. Celine. You mentioned innovation intermediaries. Could you say a little bit more about that? Because when I first heard you use that term, my immediate thought was, why do we need those when the young people coming out of undergraduate and graduate school in the technical areas are much more attuned to collaboration and sharing already? So I'd be very interested in knowing more about what you mean by that.
4: Um, first off, I like the uh, social media strategist. I'm an economic anthropologist, and I still don't know what that means. But the, the, but let me play off of what, what the, it's a, it is a perfect question. We're in a transition period. Tom talked about these big idea um, activities going on in his campus. We're bouncing into the emergence of a phrase called dormcubators, right, which are basically unleashing students who are pretty bright and pretty inventive, who kn- actually know how to use things with their thumbs a lot better than I could ever. And, but we're in a transition period right now. And I think we're in a, in a, in a period where you got to have these intermediaries in place. We, are, we actually have a lot of them. They're the ones who have to work outside the fence line of a university because certain parts of the faculty don't like to have those activities occur on the campus. All right? What we're looking at in the way of an, of an intermediary is everything from an innocent type of program, which is what Eli Lilly and Procter and & Gamble, two highly successful companies, have found, and that is not all the intellectual property and intellectual prowess can sit right in your own location. So um, the need for an intermediary who basically, the way we look at it is, there's a group of people who wake up every day, I played golf with you on Saturday, I went to church with Ed on Sunday, you said something to me, Ed said something to me, you don't know each other, but I'm a common link, and what I started doing is trying to figure out a way to get you guys together, but it's not just a dating service, it's a whole set of follow-ups, it's a very purposeful strategy. Well, it's called the extension programs, and we need maybe an innovation extension program, But I think we need a hell of a lot more trained individuals to take advantage of the technologies that are emerging. I mean, I feel hopeful that there is a new generation emerging who knows how to use their thumbs in ways that we don't. Hi,
6: I'm
7: John. John Craig, I uh, work at ANOVA Health System. I'm working with some new voice technologies out there that I've been working on for a while. I just wanted to address the uh, issue that's been raised that innovation is a social process. Uh, Just now we've talked about it a little bit more, but I'd like to go a little bit deeper. Um, In other words, innovation is a collective, uh, collaborative process, so it relies on a community of creative entrepreneurs and business people that uh, work together in spite of our rugged individual uh, idea in America. Um, in the 90s, I was, uh, happened to be living two blocks from Horton Business School just by chance. I started going over there with this voice technology concept. The campus was open. You could go into lectures. You could meet the CEOs they brought in from all over the world and talk to them in person. It was pretty amazing. And I got guidance from their small business development group for free on my emerging idea. And the law school helped as well. It was really great. Um, if you look at, of course, some of the most successful uh, innovations in technology, these Google guys uh, were l- almost living in their office on the Stanford campus. It was a campus, bumping into each other all the time. I think Facebook was started on Harvard's campus. Um, even Bill Gates uh, lived at work and hired people who were willing to bring in a sleeping bag. So they had a little community right there of sleep in. Uh, round the clock 24-7 interaction over ping-pong or whatever, informal interaction being also very important in that process. Um, They say the Beatles got going. Malcolm Gladwell said the Beatles got going when they played strip clubs in Hamburg because they were virtually playing eight hours a day, seven days a week, and they developed their team that way. Then, on the other hand, you've got this book, Bowling Alone, by Harvard uh, sociologist Robert Putnam, saying for 40 years in America community has been breaking down. So you have that counterforce going. And my particular problem in developing some of these ideas was just finding that creative community to plug into where you really could thrive and have these uh, golf talking, putting people together. And I'm just wondering to, if maybe you could be a little more specific about how you might see, you know, if you're not in a university campus setting, you don't really belong there. Uh, you're struggling out there, kicking around, uh, trying to figure out where do you, where do I plug in, where do I find that? those flows of ideas, other entrepreneurs to talk to every day from the time you roll out of bed till the time you go to bed at night, how, how you might try to uh, foster that kind of community in, in America. I don't know, maybe, maybe you could address that.
4: Okay.
2: Now, uh, I think that you've, you've hit upon a really important point, and that is, you know, sometimes we see then people do move and they move to opportunities. But, you know, it is a question. I mean, I guess you yourself went from Philadelphia now to this area. Um, And I think, you know, it's a question that for some communities to remain viable, how do you create those communities where people are working on a common common task and we do see that start up as this social process and it works when people are working as you say towards a common goal it's just a matter of of sort of defining that and some uh, someone in the community a community leader having a vision of what it is that is possible and articulating that and then having the resources to sort of build that out in in um you know, one way or another. And again, what we see is that it takes place differentially in, in different states, in different communities over time. But I think that that's one of the, the, you know, the questions and one of the things that we need to work on and address.
4: We, we completed uh, kind of piloting three different, and I hate to use the word portals, but they're communities of innovation. They're not LinkedIn and they're not Friendster, but Georgia Research Alliance. Comprise of four or five universities the private sector the and what they were trying to figure out is with the cdc being in their own backyard how do they form a community of innovators around vaccines and immunology well it's very interesting we all know each other richard we all we, we all know each other no they didn't they knew they knew pockets of discipline or they knew different pieces of it um, so what we did is we identified the top uh, 350 individuals on everything from the research campuses to the CDC to the private sector, the lawyers, the accountants, the investors, the specialized equipment and specialized facilities. To prove a case in point, two of the universities were complaining that they were going to have to go outside the state for an uh, animal Uh, vaccine related testing facility and didn't know that georgia state just down the road had that exact facility so one of the issues about innovation um, in regions is anonymity second is is that we all know what we are doing we all know each other but the frankly is sometimes we need to know somebody who's upstream or downstream in the science and the technology and what's interesting is is that georgia now has been approached by liverpool england who it too has a vaccine program in liverpool and georgia want to connect and then georgia and liverpool want to connect with other places in the united states so that ultimately what you're doing is real time just in time discovery development and translational science
1: well i guess that has to be the last word because we've run out of time it, but uh, if you want to have the last word uh each of our panelists have uh Articles on the, the Science Progress website, site, and we're, and you can blog them if, uh, if you have further things to say. Thank you for yeah, your attention. Down.